Welcome to the Staying Golden Podcast, where we'll be catching up with Laurier alumni to give the Laurier community a glimpse of what the future may hold after graduation. We would like to acknowledge that Wilfrid Laurier University and its campuses are located on the Haldeman Track, traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. My name is Mary Neal, and I have the honor and privilege today of hosting this podcast with my former classmate and amazing friend, Glenn Ray, as part of Laurier's Black History Month programming. Glenn is a Juno-nominated musician. He's an author, an advocate, a playwright, an arts administrator, and the list could go on. I met Glenn at Laurier in 2015 when we started the Masters of Community Music program together, and I have been a fan since. I am so thrilled to share his journey with the Laurier community. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed having this conversation. Hi, Glenn, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Staying Golden podcast. We're so glad to have you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. I, I was very excited about this conversation because to me, it seems like a lifetime ago since we were in the same class together doing our master's in community music and I, it yeah it just it seems like such a long time ago and I'm I wondered because I don't think I've ever asked you this is what brought you to Laurier and the community music program my friend took the program Dawn Ellis Mobs and so she she mentioned it and then she wanted me to go with her so but she went and she went two years before I did, and just wasn't the right time in my life to go, but she did pique my interest, and then um, I was sort of measuring it at first um, to see if that was something that was, I guess, would help my career, And but I'll, I have this bucket list, so in my bucket list was like, get a university degree and also go scuba diving in the Galapagos, so I'm, I've got one down. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, the Galapagos is still there, so as we know, but uh, I don't know how to scuba dive yet, but I'm optimistic that will happen. Um, so yeah, I, I went and met Lee Willingham and talked to him. And so Don had already told him about me, and then he was really, Lee is an interesting, enigmatic person, as we know, and he um, talked a lot about, you know, what the course was doing, what his hopes were for the course, and then he said, Don's told me a lot about you, but as he does, he said, I want to hear from you. Why do you want to be in this program? And so when you first met, meet Lee, his vocabulary is enormous, so it's kind of intimidating at times. So I just kind of, it affected me, and I just kind of un undersold. And I'll never forget what he said. He goes, you're, he goes, I want a songwriter in this program. He goes, I'll help you to get in. He goes, but you undersell yourself. And he goes, you need to learn how to be brave, bold, and brash. And he goes, not just for this, but for your own career. I've never forgotten. And I told him about it a couple of times. He's like, I said that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And I'll never forget it because it's very good advice. So that's, that's what convinced me, that conversation with him. That's awesome. So like you said, this is, you jumped right into a master's degree as your first university degree. How, how was that transition for you? <laughs> It was all really fine till the research course. <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, everybody's <laughs> downfall. 
Yeah, they they call that the brain vice. <laughs> you really you do feel like your enzymes are being squashed out of your mind by the time you're done that class. But no, I I, I remember it was terrifying. Like I, the first day of class, I was excited, and then as I'm driving, so it was a ninety minute drive too, and people are like, "How are you going to do this for two years?" And I'm like, "I don't know. You just do it, right?" So, um, I didn't ever found it tiring either. It's funny. I I actually enjoyed it. You know, maybe I'm weird, but I like that time of thinking, and then I'd go early and work on my schoolwork and stuff. But the first day, I um, I couldn't go to the school first. I had no sense of belonging or right to be there. So I went to the chapters on King Street, and I grabbed a coffee and sat there and talked myself into going because I was just like, okay, you, you'll be all right, just, you know... <laughs> just show up and see what happens. But I was really nervous. And then I get into the elevator with Ken and Lee. <laughs> and Ken was one of our classmates who was very, very confident and outgoing and ver verbally adept. So they're going back and forth. And I'm literally just like <laughs> quite terrified. But Gerard's class was first and him and Lee talked at the beginning. And then he started with this drone device and he's like turned off all the lights and he's like i want you to improvise so i was in my jam right away i was like oh i can do this and then it was ironic you're interesting i guess is more the word how the the paradox of life you know i was terrified of being in this university class and then it started with something that i was completely comfortable with and people in that class who were very comfortable in university were terrified of the improvisation and that kind of rang true throughout the whole course is like learning to know your value and not measure yourself against others was a big lesson from that course. I remember that. I, I'm with you. I love the improvisation part. And, um, you know, I, I came in not, I came in comfortable with university, but not as a trained musician. I came in cause I, I loved music and I, and I too, I, I walked that same journey where I had to kind of find the value, but I was very excited about like the improvisation part and how interesting it was that there was that paradox for sure. Yeah. And I remember my response back. I was so embarrassed. He's like, so what did you, what did you think of this? And I, <laughs> I put up my hand and I wasn't really thinking it through. And I had no idea what kind of discourse we were going to be entering in, in that class, which at times got really advanced with Heidi. And there was a girl there, Shelly, I think was like a genius and Shelby remember Shelby yeah in the stage she, unfortunately she dropped out but for, she was so smart man like and her knowledge of indigenous laws and, and rights and was like mind-blowing and Heidi always challenged you in class so which I love she took the, she always brought it up she brought the discourse up she wasn't she wouldn't let it like a comment like an idle comment go out of your mouth she'd challenge you to be aware of what you're saying and it was really really helpful um, but I saw, I just said the first thing on my mind. I said, that was delicious. <laughs> Such a hard goes. Because, well, that's not your typical university, to, you know, discourse, but yeah, okay, I get it. Like, Thank you for sharing. He goes, I said, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I was like listening to all these voices come together and harmonies, and then it was a feast. <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of like, the work that we do as community musicians, right, are supposed to be welcoming and inclusive and bring people in where they're at, right? You know academia. It's a funny world. Right? Yeah. I remember uh, Gerard saying, don't 
I was reading the whole first book of my assignment. He's like, dude, do not read these books. And I'm like, what? He goes, this will kill you. He goes, you got to learn how to skim and take the information out. Like, he goes, don't read these books. It'll kill you. Because I met him and my book had like a multitude of tabs and highlights. And he's like, what are you doing? You're actually reading the whole thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but he's, he was funny. He goes, well, we get paid by the words, so don't read at all. So I was like, okay. I just laughed, but part of it, part of me was disturbed. I'm like, why can't they just get to the point? He goes, that's not academia. Yeah, there's a little bit of a transition there, and especially a difference of like what happens kind of practically out in the world and what happens it, at the university and in the in the classroom. But we take those, we take the learnings, and we go out there and we make it applicable. Yeah, and you you there's a you learn where there's time and like I mean common sense tells you that too but there's a time and place where you need to have a grasp of those that terminology right and and it helps you in terms of of being able to converse with people at that level because it's it's i think the i worked with roger manti of uft and we still work together and he he put it the best to me where he was just like because the beauty of academia is there's no there's no real uh gray area here he goes when you use words like this like that's like epistemology and phenomenology and all these words he goes it's very clear what you're saying he goes so if you think about english as a language he goes there's a lot of ambivalence to it and and not direct meaning but he goes what he loved this he said what i love this is his voice what i love about academia is it's very clear when you say something and you use that language we know exactly what you mean so i was like yeah you know i see that i see the point of it i said but could we get to it quicker <laughs> nope that's not how it works. <laughs> Speaking of like taking your learnings and, and, and being able to make those definitions and those terminologies and then taking it out into the world and what it is that you do out in the world. I've, I've been following your journey now for several years. I even had the pleasure of working with you to produce a song. So in addition to playing and producing music with your band, you've, you've, got, you've had some really interesting jobs. I love watching your LinkedIn updates, uh, as well as publishing your writing. Tell us a bit about what you're working on right now. <laughs> or what you were working on before. Or, like, just tell us about whatever whatever drives you. Um, I don't know. You know, I talk to people and they're just like, how the hell do you do all that? And I kind of, really, like, worried a little bit. At times, I'm like do you possess some kind of mania like are you are you do you have some kind of and i'm not i don't mean to be flippant about it do you have some kind of health factor that makes you always have to be doing things and i'm like well it's kind of irrelevant at this point because i have lived with it lived with it this long so now i'm trying to balance and embrace that and coming to this place of really being selfish with what i do like so i'm really doing things now like where i gave a lot to my band and to charity projects everything i'm focusing on now is self is self-centered and <clears throat> we're kind of taught not to be that way but i i'm going at it from that perspective to see what it'll bring and it's been really good so i'm working on a lot of things i've uh i finished a play which i think i sent it to you you did you know one of the things that i first noticed about the play you somehow have both my kids' names in there. Stop it. Abigail and Lorelai. The two key people. 
I know. And Lorelai is such an odd name, too. So I was like... It's not a just... common name in African culture, right? No. Yeah, tell, tell, us, tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us about that play for people who haven't had the, haven't had the privilege of reading it. Well, I, it's part of a journey like where I read this book called The War of Art, which is a play on words of The Art of War and by Stephen Pressfield. And it's, a, it's an amazing book because it holds you directly accountable for your own habits. So if you, basically what he says, if you're a writer, write. And if you're not writing, you're not a writer. So if you want to be a writer, then stop putting that you know, dream out there and become a writer. And he goes, the only way to do it is to commit to the writer's life. So I read more into it and Basically, it's, it's, it's exhausting, like, honestly. I, I get up, I've been, last year and a half, I've been getting up at five in the morning on most days during the week. And then I, I've, I have to be very disciplined, so I have an afternoon nap of 20 minutes every day, or else I'm, I'm a mess at night, I can't function properly. And on days when I don't get it, I, I go to bed at, like, nine, because I'm just, you're just empty, right? But I write that hour every morning is is only writing and I don't do anything. I have a, a glass of water, espresso and come and sit and write for an hour. And because of that, I was able to do the play and the poetry book. And I've written a bunch of children's stories and I'm working on a novel and I'm writing a book, which I'll tell you about in a second, because it relates to this big shift that's happened in my life. And, but, um, the play came from one of our classmates from Daisy. So she heard my live Delta Blues CD and she said, you know, there's a play in that. You know the way Daisy, she's so sweet, right? But Daisy's also got really clear conviction. She's an interesting and enigmatic person. She's lovely, but she's also very clear and, and strong on her views and stuff. So I said, oh, wow, I didn't think of it that way. She goes, oh, she goes, it's a play. She goes, I don't know what it is, but it's a play. So I took that with me for a long time and then, I was thinking about it hard, like, what is the story here? Like, so there's parts of me in the story, but the real sort of like turning point was when I was thinking this play could be representative of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father, Son is your classic Father, Son battle, but it's based on fear becoming ignorance, becoming hatred between them. But they actually love each other. There's just this fear that builds that, which is so endemic in our society on other levels, right? But where this story came from and the and the, the holy spirit was the woman all the women in the family being the choir and i i took that as being the voice of reason because this is my perception women being the nurturers of life they have to be reasonable whereas men can choose to be reasonable and we hope that they do but you know and and that's a generality but if you bring in a, a life into to the world you got to be reasonable or this kid won't survive right so but for guys, it's kind of like, yeah, I'll change a diaper. <laughs> I could do it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so then it grew into this story. And then I just pulled some names out of the, I wanted it to have like biblical overtones. So Isaiah was the old, uh, Jude, the, the old, I forget the, is it an Aramaic way of spelling Isaiah? I'm not sure. It's a very old language. And, and the father, Elijah, I love the name, Elijah, and Abigail. So they were all the names were pulled, and then some of them I changed. Like, Laura Lee was a song I wrote, and I liked the spelling, and it was a German name. And I was like, this is interesting. And an African 
a, a child on a plantation would have a German name, but her background was very painful, right, and pain-filled. So in a way it made sense that she was kind of an an anomaly. But yeah, I don't want to go into it too much, but it's kind of that whole battle, and then it reflects the story of the the great migration from the south to the north. So I read this book by Isabella Wickerson about the great migration, and oh my God, my mind was blown. And I I read her other book called Cast, and it's like, Cast is like the hardest book I've ever had to read. It is horrific what they did to black people. We have no idea. The stuff we hear about is nothing to what actually happened. And when you read that book, and everybody should have to read that book, because it's it's so difficult to to read, but then you know why we have a, um, a man killed in the street by a police officer why George Floyd happened is because this is an American culture. It's a North American culture, but not to the level of that antipathy that the United States has. But that's what like informed this play and man, it just, it just like became like a living entity to me. All these characters are alive and the music and it's my dream to see it on Broadway. Like I got to find a way to get it there because I feel like regardless of whether it's good or whatever, it's just like this story needs to be told. And the play is unrelenting. Like there's a whipping in the play, there's a hanging in the play, there's brutality in the play, there's implied rape in the play. But that was their daily lives. And people think, oh well, it was slavery when sharecropping happened, and they could have their own places and then freedom and stuff. That's that changed. But right up until the 40s and 50s, you had to escape off of a sharecropping plantation to get to the north. You literally had to go with nothing to another town to get on the train because they would stop you or hurt your family or hurt you. And I was like, how is that possible? You know, like, it's insane, man. Lynching was still allowed up into the 1970s, legally. And every town in the South had a lynching tree. And it was like a freaking morbid picnic for them down there. And then this book, the cast, like I read, the greatest source of revenue from the U.S. Postal Service was the sale of lynch cards in the 1900s, pictures of the lynchings. And then people protested, so they put them in envelopes. And it still was their highest revenue source. And it gets even more gross, but I don't want to get into it. But man, it's changed my life, and I really want this play to happen. <laughs> I, I hope it does. It is very powerful, and I'm grateful that you shared it with You felt you could share it with me, and I I, I would love to get tickets to your the workshop performance of it. I just want to see how this looks like. Sorry? You'll always have front row. Woohoo! Yes! I've been a big supporter of everything I do, so I'll, for sure, you know. It's not that hard, Glenn. No, no, I appreciate <laughs> it. Man. I would love to be so exciting to have people that I love there watching it. It's just like, oh, it's a dream. I, but I found with things like they, people talk about manifestation, right? And it's true. Like, if you visualize and you, and you dream and then you build that dream, it's not enough. The manifestation goes to a different level. It's like, now how do you make this happen? And you need a team, like, and that's where your, your manifestation comes in. You almost have to let go of this baby, like you've created this beautiful treasured piece of art. Let it go to a really good team, and that's what I'm trying to do is build a team and, and try to manifest this vision because I have no clue how a play is, comes from this. I have a sense of it, but to where it actually shows up on a stage and... I need to learn that, and so that's the next part that I need to to 
approach is that? Well, maybe an alum who's listening, who will listen to this podcast might be able to make some connections for you. Yeah, all you alum who are directors and producers, call me. It's the next big hit. <laughs> Let us know if you want to reach out to Glenn. We'll keep, we'll put you in touch for sure. Speaking of um, dreaming and manifestation uh, and, and, and working towards, you know, the things that you want to, especially in the arts, I want to ask you a little bit about this pandemic time we find ourselves in. You know, it's been such a hard time for the art sector, even for people who are extremely motivated and extremely capable, right? Like the, the, the opportunities and the, the, the ability to make money and, and fund and produce and put on has all been impacted by, by this current pandemic. And so I'm curious to see what the pandemic has revealed to you about the intrinsic value of the arts and, and, you know, what have our governments, organizations and individuals like, like, what are they doing to support artists and how do we support artists and what do we do to come back from the world as it is right now? I think this is multifaceted, like, you know, being, staying motivated on, on, on my career level was difficult because at first it was just like everybody, it was the novelty, three weeks we'll be back at it. I'll, I'll just hang out and sing online every night and whatever and have fun and it was kind of almost, it was like entertaining to people. Let's watch the Tiger King in our pajamas and drink more and eat more and bake bread. <laughs> All these weird things that came out. Is that what you did? Because I saw you live a lot on Facebook, so. I did not bake bread or overeat. I drank a little more than normal, mostly red wine at night when I was singing. <laughs> but people were actually miscon had a misconception of that too. But um, I, I was I was definitely staying healthy and active and and walking every day and working out and I, I, I can't not do that because it, it's just how I've been how I live right right uh, I know it makes me feel good but yeah I mostly like it just started as a lark I'll sing on on air and then it just grew into my brother saying you can't you can't take a night off man you know because we look forward to this everybody's watching you and I'm like okay you're right calm down because no you mean because it's like we look forward to it all day when you don't have much to look forward to like please don't stop so i was like and i didn't realize the impact someone gave me 150 dollars at a party and then and another said this is for entertaining us i said i don't need you i don't want money like i just did it because it was fun and and i liked it she goes you don't have no idea what it meant and then another woman at the same party that was crying and hugging me and she goes you kept this was something that helped me want to live like and i was like holy cow you underestimate your impacts often right you know and um, to, to keep motivated though, like career wise, I, both my companies that I worked for that are nonprofits part-time immediately went online and one I had to resign from because I just didn't fit into what they were doing. I'm not, they wanted me to do things out of my, my, my abilities and the other one has been good and it's still going. And then, but like music wise, it was like having to invent things to do my bass player created an online music series that lasted quite a long time and that was some way for us to perform and then it grew into performing outside with you know it was very organized they did a good job they spray painted circles on the ground and and so that was the first summer where people were still very nervous to be around each other but they were able to to create that and then 
you know, when you get into year two of it, and I lost my mother and my brother. And with, like, my mom died in June, my brother died in October, and it just destroyed me. And uh, it was just, like, leveled personally and grieving. And, 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 but then, you know, like, in November, I released the poetry book. So it was, it was just strange. I was kind of operating on adrenaline, maybe, and still pushing and pushing and... We started development of a documentary film during this time. We've been recording a new album, recording music for the play, writing the play, and just constantly trying to keep pushing forward. And, you know, and I had an opportunity to teach online last winter, which helped with the winter blues and being locked down. But this January hit me hard. The first two weeks, I just really just said, okay, I don't feel like I can do anything, so I won't do anything. And musically, I didn't do anything. And now I'm getting my energy back. But, you know, the arts, in my opinion, have not been supported well at all. Nor have small business people who own restaurants and things like that. Um, <clears throat> I don't agree, like, how that's been handled. I always felt safer going into my friend's stores on Main Street than Costco. Because they were very serious about the regulations, and they put on all the, they spent the money to to make everybody feel safe, and they weren't treated fairly. Our government's done a terrible job. The value, the problem with artists though, is like we don't have a measurable income. We're cash income, so are waitresses and waiters. And however, there has to be a way to come up with a figure. Like I know in Ireland, they gave they started this three year program, and they selected three thousand artists, musicians. To support with a basic income that just happened and but there's still there's still 12,000 who aren't getting it but the idea of basic income to me makes sense especially for someone in the arts because there's a reciprocal in, input back into the economy a circular economy and the value to the, the mental wellness of a society that the arts provide so I don't know what it will take for the world to wake up to the value of arts because we were every we were saying, oh, people are missing music so much, man. Like when we come back, there's gonna be amazing crowds, and there hasn't been, and the sales of our music have not exploded because of it. And honestly, I don't know if it's human nature where we're spoiled and entitled, basically, or you take something away and people are like, oh, I really miss that, you know, and then it comes back, and they're just like, whatever, give a shit, you know, and then. It's just frustrating, and I'll be honest, it's really frustrating. So the responses from, from people who are fans and from the government have made a lot of people I know in my, who are in my industry have given them pretty severe depression. Like, it's, it's impacting people. People are leaving. They're not doing it anymore. Even in our own band, like we did our New Year's show, and after it, we lost all of our shows which we'd finally started booking again. We had four gigs in January. We've had gigs bumped back. And uh, one of my bandmates just said, that's the last show you'll ever see me play. I'm done. And I was, it was heartbreaking. But I knew he just needed space. And I'm just like, uh, I didn't say anything. And, but it was heartbreaking. And I get why he, why he said it. But I don't think people understand Somebody said, I posted something on Facebook saying, we need to play. Like, we will play at your house for free. <laughs> I actually said this. All we want to do is videotape it so we can, like, have something from it. It's like, we'll record and videotape a house concert. It's free for you. So somebody posted on there. It's like, 
you don't need to play you want to play and it goes it's pretty irresponsible to like during these times to have a group of people blah 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 you're just being a one of those trolls you know so i just posted on there said maybe you don't need to play but i need to play and i, I don't think you have any right to tell me <laughs> what i need on this post it's none of your business so stay off of it right and then i just blocked him because i didn't want him a uh, troll war but i we do need to play it sustains your soul it's part of your life right it's part of your life it's also part of like you're you're honing in your talent and if you don't practice and use it and put it out there then it's like anything you 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 start to it starts to fade and you don't you don't want your you don't want your artists to suffer through that experience no like first shows we did we were just kind of a little bit dusty off the top but by the midpoint of the show we're just kind of like it's all right <laughs> somebody <laughs> said to us after that i could never heard you guys sound better and i was like yeah maybe absence makes you work harder or you're feeling it more intensely i know after the first yeah. couple of shows i was literally just physically and drained because we we played super hard because we missed it so much yeah In the song you're just like yeah you know like <laughs> digging in and going hard and part of it too is like, after my brother passed away he i've like the way he played was he would sing from the beginning he would go straight to 10 and he would feed sang for an hour every song was at 10 like it was never like it was always like yeah and going for it hard right and he'd always say to me why do you always hold back man like you always hold him back and goes you should let it out you know so now i've i i always think before every show i go play like andre mm. and the shows have been the response has been unbelievable yeah that's such a good way to honor your brother yeah it feels good i'm getting a shirt made actually i got a wicked picture of him rocking out on a boat yeah shirtless playing this beautiful white bass and his hair was kind of afro-ish and i'm like rock star so i'm gonna get rock star right across the top and have him on a shit t-shirt i'll have to look at i'd have to look for that in your merch section of your of your website i don't want to make any money off it. <laughs> <laughs> um i want to congratulate you on your recent role as education outreach coordinator for the aurora cultural center congratulations yeah thanks that's awesome and in the slew of really interesting amazing jobs that you you seem to find for yourself um i did read a little bit about it though because i was curious when when that linkedin update showed up um and i saw in a press release that the cultural center emphasized the importance of your role in addressing diversity and inclusion in the community um, could you walk us through some of your advocacy work in equity and inclusion and your vision for your role over the next five or so years? Uh, well, with I've always like done programs for equity in the schools, and I've been a real advocate for social justice and for r racial awareness, but I haven't done much in terms of LGBTQ+, or 2SLGBTQ+, IA. So... I'm trying to learn more about it. And what I've really come to embrace is this. It's a quote that I came up with is like, um, the evolution of language is the first step to the revolution of a society, right? I love that quote. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's important to me because I've heard people say like, 
comments about trans people and about pe people's identities and the various different identities that keep surfacing in that community and the different racial racial identities that come up and the designations for different demographics and and there's a kind of a pushback where people don't want to change that they want to stick to what they know however it's it only serves them and i won't say which demographic it is but it is traditionally from one demographic right that wants to adhere to what they call Canadian way, sometimes it's called that, or, or a standardized way that they're used to. But, you know, that kind of logic is, is ridiculous. It's like saying, why should we have seatbelts? My parents used to sleep on the back seat of the car, or the Nova. We survived, and we went biking without helmets. And it's that kind of like lack of evolution that that is, is endemic in this stuff, you know? and that doesn't take an effort for me to find out someone's preference, you know. If they say that their their pronouns are they and them, then I, I refer to, to them that way. I don't say he because I'm not respecting their wishes. So it's no harm to me. Um, to try to understand why someone would change their, their sexual um, identity with the an operation and to, to become transsexual. Well, it doesn't matter if I understand it. I only have to try to understand and respect their wishes. How could I possibly know what it feels like? It doesn't take a genius to understand that, like with, you know, with, with hormones and the way the body operates and how people are born differently, that sometimes that is, it's a very distinct possibility. Of course it could be. Now I think it's, it's wonderful that people can actually like find a place, a way that they can be happy, you know? We had a, guy, a musician we know who was, who who's came out as a woman, changed his name, and he was a bass player, and uh, he walked into the local music store, and all the guys used his female name, said, hey, how are you? I was like, you guys are beautiful, and they're like, well, he's happy. She's happy. Who cares? And I don't see why we can't be that Change is difficult for people, and adherence to ideologies is causing has caused problems and is continuing to cause problems. And I think that's what I want to do with this job: is to change that pervasive reality that exists, and say, why can't we embrace a new reality? And why can't we embrace all cultures and religions and faiths and grow and learn from it, without having to say that it's not right? Because, you know. If you were to go to the secular argument, we're not supposed to judge, right? That's supposed to be for God, Allah, the Creator, whoever you prescribe your beliefs to. It's, it's not a human right to judge or a capacity to judge, but we do it all the time. So we're sort of, sort of it's, it's hypocritical for anybody who uses secularism as an argument for this kind of thing. So I, I, I really feel strongly about changing society. I also believe that our kids will be at the forefront of that, that they don't see it. It's in their DNA. They don't, they don't embrace it the same way that we do. I don't think they see it. Like they see, uh, my, my daughters talk about it all the time. They say, oh, so-and-so is a lesbian. And, you know, this girl, uh, boy on my daughter's soccer team is now a girl. And I saw, him at, saw her at the mall. And I'm just like, oh, isn't it great that, you know, so-and-so can now be... A girl and my girls that looked at me like I was a two-headed weirdo. <laughs> They're like, "What's so great about it?" I'm like, well, I, I, "I don't know. I mean, I'm stammering like an idiot. Like, because it's just great." And they go, "Well, that's who she is, Dad." And I'm like, "Yeah, you're right. 
And they walked ahead of me like I was such an idiot. And I felt like such an idiot. And I'm like, but I was also so happy that they felt that way. So that's what I try to bring to the job. And I'm very particular with language. So I kind of like, <laughs> I review everything we put out there. And I'm really, really sticky on things. Like we make sure that we say this the right way because I don't want people to come back and say, you're saying you're this, but you're not really saying it correctly or clearly. And um, I, I hope that my generation will learn to change. But I think you got to push people, you know, and I'm trying to push people in a way that's not confrontational. And that's a learning curve, too, because I've experienced racism. If someone comes at me with direct racism, it's hard to temper that and not get angry. Or if they say something stupid about indigenous people, like, oh, they're all drunks. And it's amazing that you still hear that kind of crap, you know. It's hard to go, oh, you have to stay calm because no one learns if you lose your temper. And I think that's the great leaders of our time have known that innately, that you, you stay calm and temperate and stick to your message and they will listen. Yeah. Um, I want to... I want to loop back to this conversation about polarization and confrontation in ways where it may be, may not be like so scientifically evidenced uh, conversations like racial tension. And how do you address the conflict and the confrontation that comes out of? I try to do it the same way, where where you're you're calm and and state clearly why. It's unacceptable what they've said if I encounter it, you know. And I have a very good friend of mine who's, who's really blunt about it. She, well, she'll say, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable now. Like, you need to learn that Indigenous people are not like that. Like, they've been treated horribly and that that is a racial statement and I won't tolerate it. And I admire her for that. Like, she said she's gotten into arguments. She's like, I'm, and she'll just stop them. She'll like, I'm sorry, no. You're wrong. You cannot say that. And I think that that kind of like forthrightness and absoluteness in your in your uncertainty in what you say is is important. And I'm trying to do that now to not let things go. And you also have to pick your battles too, right? Like for your own safety and and use some wisdom with it. But I think these are important things to do. Like it's important for us to state our feelings about these things and, and base them on facts. And you know, you have to do your research. You have to be ready to, I think you have to be ready to be able to, to argue effectively or you shouldn't, you know. But from a personal point of view, I, I, I don't, I won't tolerate it. I'll just be like, I'm sorry, you can't say that, man. Like, that is insulting. And if people don't get it, I'll, I'll explain it to them, you know. It's like, <laughs> it's amazing to me where it comes from, though, man. I know I had a, I had a family member, a cousin, who said, like, Oh, you know, the, the African soccer players are all selfish and they don't pass and that's why their teams lose. And I, So I stopped him. I said, why are you being racist, man? <laughs> He's like, what are you talking about? I said, you're, caught, you're, you're telling me that African soccer players are no good and that they are hoggy, hog the ball and they're selfish. Like, but that's just racist. Like, how do you know this? Goes, well, that's just the way what it, you know the way they, they play. That's why they never get anywhere in the World Cup. I go, you you you're giving them a, a behavior pattern based on their Africanness. That's racial. 
so we battled for a while but i would not give up and i'm like you can't say stuff like that man without being able to back it up or understanding that it's potentially volatile and racist not to mention not to mention the systemic barriers and funding allocations and what is accessible and resourcing for for different countries in their different and different sports and it's it's funny though like this trigger th trigger words right like yeah white privilege yeah i believe that you have to be really careful how you say white privilege because it in it denotes that white people themselves are privileged which in a sense they are but they're only privileged because of the white system which is a white ruled system which is colonial based which is european expansion based so if you can explain that well to somebody and say i'm not saying a white person is bad for one there's no such thing as a white person you're a european person or you're you know you could come from russia or like you're not a white person nor are you a black person these are colors not people the whole thing is a mess <laughs> you know it tells me nothing about anyone right i say to you like oh i know this guy he's black man he's such a cool dude and like that could be anywhere man like you know but if i say i got this guy i met he's a somalian man and he knows this like amazing africa west african senegalian type music he studied with this cat you know and he's now you can almost hear who he is you know what i mean it's so important it's like i, I worked with this guy who was in british and i was like we had this conversation and his mother was indian and he showed me a picture of his brother who was clearly Indian. And there's like two opposites. I go, so if I call you a white dude, it's saying like you're from a white family, there goes half of your identity. You know? So we, I think there's a lot of things that have to change. Even in black culture, like they accept the word black as being okay. Black power, black this. I hate it. I think I'm a, an outlier, but I hate it. It's like black power is bullshit, man. It's like, it's, it doesn't say anything. It should be African power or like, you know, or the power of identity, you know? Like, it's too small. It's too small to me, you know? And I, maybe I'm wrong that way. Maybe we need this. To me, this is like, it, it's childish. I'd rather see the power of culture or like the beauty of the human, human power, man. Like, you know, I get Black Lives Matter. I, I get why we it's important till all lives matter you know can't argument will all lives matter when black lives matter because black lives have never mattered before i understand that but that only gets you to a certain point you know and i don't even think it gets you to a certain point because it's always going to be no you know black lives will not matter because the white power system says no because you're a threat you know and that's real but if you put it into the human perspective, like humanity matters, culture matters, and, and learn your neighbor, man. Like, don't just say, I live beside this black dude. He's always cooking jerky, jerky chicken. <laughs> you know? Well, then chances are he's Jamaican. So, you know. <laughs> My neighbors were Jamaican growing up. I totally understand that smell. <laughs> <laughs> Jamaican, maybe his friend, friend was Jamaican and taught him how to make it. You know, I I don't know. <laughs> I'm not giving up on this battle though. I hate color designation. It causes so many issues. We, we we're lazy, man. 
like when you meet someone you like we did this amazing thing was workshop and everybody had to say where they were from and I was doing this black history talk and I said I want you to stand up and say your name and tell me where you come from I almost had tears in my eyes man this guy stands up he goes I'm from Trinidad I'm from you know I'm from from India I'm from Pakistan like and and I was just like wow we are beautiful people from all over the world man black white is bullshit sorry i get really angry about it no that's that's great this is what this conversation's about i'm gonna ask you one more slightly heavier question before we go to a we're, we'll wrap up with a, on a lighter note how about that um but i'm really enjoying this conversation uh so what do you think about Black History Month. <laughs> I, and, and I'll say I'm the one who invited you on in to celebrate Black History Month, working within the system I work in. It's a funny thing, man. You know, like I, I, I present in the schools and a lot of my income came from Black History Month. And we used to joke around with this woman. She was a poet and was like, so you see, it's funny. She says, Black Employment Month's been good, you know? <laughs> I believe it. We would laugh and be like, don't say it too loud. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like, I, I, I hope we don't need it anymore. And I, I don't like calendar-based celebration. I recognize like certain days are important. You know, Orange Shirt Day, which is now National Truth and Reconciliation Day, Martin Luther King Day, his birthday. You know, um, where are where's when was Viola Desmond born? What day was that? What was the day she was thrown out of that theater in Truro, Nova Scotia? What day was that in 1946? Why aren't we just marking all these days on our Canadian calendar, man? Like, you know. Um, there was a woman uh, who was taken across the border and Governor Sinclair at the time created that law in Ontario to, re to reduce uh, slavery, not to abolish it. Chloe Cooley was taken across the border and she put up a huge fight. So she was captured by slave traders in 1736, I think. I might be wrong on the date. 1764. I don't know. It's like... we, got, we, we got the idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why aren't we recognizing that date as opposed to just one month? It should be throughout the whole year. When did Tecumseh, uh, when was the battle, the turning point in the War of 1812 when Tecumseh basically with his militia who, who taught, you know, armies around the world how guerrilla warfare was so effective. When did that happen? What was that date, you know? Like, where are the significant, important dates in Canadian history that are culturally, offer a cultural, broad perspective, right? You know, what are the important dates in, in, the, in, the, in you got in the Midwest for, the, the, for that largely, like, so that Scandinavian, German, Polish cultural group there? What are their significant dates that they would like to see recognized? What are the dates that the Mi'kmaq, the Inuit, the Inuk want to see recognized? Why can't Canada have this like marvelous kaleidoscope of celebration throughout the year so that 
but black history doesn't feel like this token bullshit recognition. Here's your month, you know, the shortest, coldest month of the year. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> we say as it's like, what, minus 30 outside today? Uh, some celebration, man. It should be in the summer. We should be having picnics. It should be joyous. It's always so heavy. You know, it is a heavy thing, but like, and it's important to understand our that history, but to understand the history throughout the year, man. Like, what, what, when was when was the day when Martin Luther King did the turn the turnaround on the Edmund Pettus Bridge? What day was that? What is the significance of that? When was the day that this opera singer Portia, I forget her full name, performed to the Queen in Canada, the first black opera singer in the when to be known around the world who's Canadian, you know, like that's cool. That gives people a different reckoning of history, like pride, man. What if some black girl saw that and said, and she could sing and said, oh, I didn't know black people could sing opera. Oh, wow, this girl was actually the best in the world and she sang for the queen. Nobody knows that. It drives me crazy, you know, like, <laughs> and we need to know why people came to Canada to escape slavery, but also discover, like, this ain't winning the lottery either. Because, you know, Africville happened, and they they put every kind of industry into that area in Africville, and then they put in a garbage extermination plant, which basically eliminated that as an area that could be for community living, and 400 people's homes were taken down by bulldozer in one day, with no warning. And then they had to just go, you know. And I went to Nova Scotia and I met this woman. I was so blessed. I was at the the museum, and this woman was there from Africville, man. And I'm like, I might cry here. And I went, and I, I, I looked at her, and I just said, I'm so sorry for what we did to you. And I didn't know what to say to her. I was so ashamed, you know. And she said, they, can, they can't take away this. Our community lives here. They took our homes, but they can't take this away. She goes, this will always be our home. And I just said, oh my God, you are beautiful, man. Like, ah, I'll never forget it. You know, when you, we hear about stuff like that, it's like, you know, and people go, why do we have these recognitions and things like that? because of that and why do we take down statues of people who are oppressors and 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 purveyors of hatred it's because we should be putting up statues of people who who are doing wonderful things for our country who who have fought against racism and oppression not recognizing these pillars of of a colonial system that brought oppression into this country ryerson needs to change its name you know, all these things matter. People are like, oh, well, why are you taking our statues down? Why, why are we criticizing John A. McDonald? Well, because John A. McDonald was a racist. Yeah, it was a sign of the times, but he was a racist prime minister. So we need to know that and acknowledge it and not celebrate all the things about him. There was good things about him too, but it also has to be accounted for that he created the, you know, residential school system and directly called them savages you know so what, what do you do with that how is an indigenous person supposed to feel welcome in a nation that still has monuments to these iconic representation 
representatives of, of racism. It doesn't work. In Germany, they put markers on the sidewalk of people, Holocaust victims to recognize the, that they were, their lives were destroyed. They celebrate the ones who were hurt. In the States, they put you know, these pompous asses on horses, on, and now, thankfully, they're starting to take them down. But if they're doing it in the U.S., we should be doing it here without question and, and have some guts about our, 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 our leadership. And our citizenry needs guts too. It has to, we have to decide, like we either live one way, or we're just going to be continually pulled backwards by the chains of history. Got to make up our minds and fight. <laughs> I love your passion, and I know that you're doing this work and all the things that you're doing. Yeah, I'll never stop. In the, yeah, in the in the words that you write, in the songs that you write, in like the the nonprofit work that you do and the jobs that you hold. I know that you're living out the things that you're talking about, which is one of the reasons I really wanted to invite you to this conversation and share this conversation broadly with our community. So thank you. I will ask you, I want to ask you, I want, I do want to leave it with a, with a Laurier memory. I want just for fun. What's your favorite Laurier memory? <laughs> well, you're a part of it. Oh, yeah. So you know the first day when I when I came to school, and I hid in chapters. <laughs> so I'd never been to a convocation before. So it was a big deal for me. I was like, Oh my god, I'm actually gonna get a degree. I get to walk across the stage and like get a degree. What? I didn't even show up for my high school graduation. I was so insecure. I, I like severe lack of confidence. But so this was like this was a real big moment, you know. And I was like lost, you know. I remember. <laughs> showing up there and not knowing what to do and then you were there and you were like smiling and you were so happy for me and you gave a big hug and you totally took me under your wing and and helped me and directed me and we took i think we took we did take a picture together right yeah and we did take a picture together yeah so that was that was one of my favorite memories it was like I did it I made made this journey and and you were so happy for me and it was it just it was a great memory. Oh my gosh, you're going to make me cry now. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad I was able to be part of that memory for you. And I'm so glad that that was, an, that was such a crucial kind of moment in your time because you deserved it. And you're an amazing ambassador for Laurier out in the world and all the things that you do, holding that degree and saying that we were part of your journey to get you to where you are. So we're very proud. It was a thrill. I wanted to go really slow across the stage to, you know, the, you know, everybody struts and they're like, yes. Like I wanted to just go like, you know, <laughs> take my time. And then like, when they take your hand, just hang on. Sing a little ballad while you're up there and. A little longer, maybe pose for a picture. Like, no, <laughs> all these ideas. And then go in for the hug, go in for the hug, come on. But I was so nervous. I think I skidded across. Like my <laughs> wife was there with my kids, and she's like, "Oh, you move so quick. It was so hard to get a picture of you." But she did get a good picture, though. I was pretty impressed. That's awesome. Had the zoom camera, and we were all like ready, you know. So yeah, it was awesome. It was, the best part too of that day was like having my kids there, and I was like, I really, really want them to see this example, like that you can go back to school at any age, and and you can. You can get a dream, you know, you can manifest it and get it. It was cool. 
So I'm glad like you were like the first person I saw when I walked in there. Now I'm going to cry again. Oh, no, I know. I'm already crying. <laughs> I'm like trying to hold it together to finish up this interview. <laughs> you just made me feel like it was going to be all right. Like I didn't know where to go. I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do here? What you, you went through the hard part already. This this part was... <laughs> where do you go? So, so welcoming to see you. That's awesome. Glenn, thank you. This has been great. And I really appreciate, we all really appreciate you taking the time and being open and honest and and just putting it out there and telling us the things that we should be thinking about this month and all year, all year, not just. We need our own yep. proud Canadian calendar that celebrates everything. And the last thing I want to say. Yeah. If anyone touches a Terry Fox monument in any way, they should be fined $1,000 that goes right to the Canadian Cancer Society and be forced to do community service canvassing for the Terry Fox Foundation. That's what I think. So the next thing we're going to know is you're going to be running for, for office? Is that <laughs> making these policy changes? I think you can do more outside of office. Hmm. You're doing a lot of work already as it is on the ground. Grassroots is really how things happen nowadays. Yeah, I believe in it. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to let's wrap this up because it's been so great. And we are going to have you, I'm sure, back in some ways to, to continue this conversation, catch up with you to figure out what the next thing you're going to do is. Share with us when you have your play up and it's ready for us to share broadly can't wait man and your next book we, we've already got you on our alumni authors list your next book will just get added right onto there too so we can share it with our community as well very cool thanks all the things all right well thank you so much again and uh have a great rest of your day you too take care man. sometimes i look back on my life i wonder where i'm